You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thank you as always for joining us. Lots going on at Judicial Watch. Two federal court hearings this week. A major federal court ruling in terms of civil rights and the soft on crime agenda. Revelations on January 6th revelations on Twitter, and plus Judicial Watch is front and center at CPAC. I'll talk about that as well. Uh, first up is the big news about January 6th. Tucker Carlson was given access to the January 6th videos uh, by uh, Speaker McCarthy, and he played some of those videos. And they further confirm uh, that many of the January 6th protesters were not violent. They weren't there for an insurrection. And the media and many Republicans and Democrats who have a, 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 a frankly, a interest in promoting the traditional January 6th narrative because they don't like Donald Trump and they think it hurts Donald Trump, that's my view, uh, went ballistic. Uh, one of the videos, and I think we'll show that video, maybe we'll pull it from Tucker's show, uh, shows this QAnon shaman who was put in jail for 41 months. The videos show him being escorted around the Capitol complex by U.S. Capitol Hill police officers. Uh, they were trying doors for him. They were obviously uh, cordially engaging with him, and he didn't seem to be doing anything violent or, quote, insurrectionist. And the idea that that man would be put in jail for 41 months simply because he was dressed oddly and, wasn't en and was engaged in the type of protest, however illicit in the sense he wasn't supposed to be there, as many others have over the years, to me is an uh, affront to fair justice under the law. And Mitch McConnell, who um, has become virulently anti-Trump, and traditional establishment Republicans are angry these videos have been released. I, for one, commend Speaker McCarthy for beginning to open up uh, to public access these videos. Now, many of you may recall, or I hope know, that Judicial Watch has been for two plus years suing in federal court the Capitol Police to try to get access to these videos. And they've been telling us, uh, this is Congress generally, that they have sovereign immunity, meaning that we can't sue them in court, and the records, the videos aren't public records. And even if they were, they weren't important enough to release. Well, this kind of belies all of that, don't you think? Plus, there are emails that haven't been released. So we're pleased that Speaker McCarthy has begun to release the January 6th videos, despite the caterwauling from uh, the Republican and Democratic establishment who hate the idea that there's any January 6th narrative other than the one that they're using to try to justify the jailing of opponents of President Biden using January 6th as a pretext. And so it looks like there will be more videos coming out. You can bet that Judicial Watch will continue to litigate this issue in court so that all the videos that can come out under law, at least we hope under this court process, are released. And plus there are emails about the security around that day that we're very interested in getting that this January 6th rump committee never bothered to release. But all of these videos should have been made available as soon as they were available, as soon as they had been collated, they should have been released. And the fact that they were withheld in large measure, not for security reasons, not for national security reasons, uh, is an uh, indication uh, that the January 6th narrative is false. 
meaning they had a story, a political story they wanted to tell, uh, to focus on the violence of that day and pretending that everyone who was there that day was engaged in violence or anyone who wants to protest against um, elections that are in dispute is an insurrectionist. And of course, all that works, as I said, against Trump. Uh, so all these videos need to be released as soon as possible. Uh, we hope that Congress changes its position. I don't think they will, though, on, on whether the open records law, the public right to access to government information, uh, is, is upheld in law. So we hope all these videos are released under the law. Of course, we have this lawsuit. That would be the best way to release them. But on the other hand, if they're released otherwise, uh, we'd be happy to take, uh, uh, take them any way we could get them under the law. And uh, Speaker McCarthy has the ultimate authority in our view and practically speaking to release all of these videos, and he should. And he shouldn't let uh, Speaker, uh, excuse me, Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer or Adam Schiff or anyone else uh, persuade him otherwise. And I tell you, um, you know, many of us have criticized Speaker McCarthy for having, you know, a different approach on policy issues than some conservatives and some of us would have liked. But here he's doing the right thing. And if you agree with what Speaker McCarthy's doing on these January 6th videos and you think he needs to release all of them, I encourage you to call his office. You can reach the Speaker's office by calling 202-225-3121. Just ask for the Speaker. Of course, ask for your Congressman. Ask for your Senator. Say, why are you hiding or why, is, why are their videos still being hidden? Why are their emails still being hidden? We want all the information about January 6th. If it was so important, then you shouldn't be hiding evidence. So this is a corruption scandal. It shows, uh, these videos show uh, that it looks like the courts may have been messed with. These folks may have been put in jail under false pretenses. And of course, the American people have been messed with in the sense they've been fed a load of lies on uh, the, what really happened on January 6th. So kudos to Speaker McCarthy for beginning to release these videos. Kudos to, speak, uh, to Tucker Carlson, who's also under attack. The suggestion is, is that he should be forced off the air, the left is suggesting, uh, for daring to release information about government scandals in a major historical event, January 6th. I mean, that's how crazed the left is uh, on January 6th. They're willing to destroy the First Amendment in order to keep its, his, its, its what looks to be their fake history about it going. So Judicial Watch, as always, is front and center on this issue. Our federal court fight continues, and we're going to push hard for this. And I hope Speaker McCarthy follows up on this records release with a change in approach in terms of the legal resistance uh, to our case that previously had been brought before or brought against the Pelosi Congress. And I hate to think that the McCarthy Congress is taking the same anti-transparency legal position uh, that Pelosi has taken. So encourage uh, Speaker McCarthy, congratulate him for doing the right thing and encourage him to do more of the right thing. Uh, that's what I would do but you have the right to communicate with him still under the First Amendment. Again, 202-225-3121. Also this week was uh, the big Twitter file hearings by the House Republicans, namely uh, Jim Jordan's subcommittee on, I think, the weaponization of government. 
Now, Jim Jordan is a Republican from Ohio who is uh, pretty hard-charging. Uh, Judicial Watch has always admired his tenacity and his willingness uh, to take on these tough battles. And um, you could see, and I hope you've been able to see, part of the Twitter hearings or the Twitter file hearings where he had some of the journalists who Elon Musk had allowed to review Twitter files and then disclose them uh, come and testify about what they found. In the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan, in his deposition in Missouri versus Biden, said that he repeatedly, repeatedly informed Twitter and other social media platforms of the likelihood of a hack and leak operation in the run-up to that presidential election. He did it even though there was no evidence. In fact, he said in his deposition that we hadn't seen anything, no intrusions, no hack. Yet he repeatedly told him something was coming. I think most of these people are tech executives and they don't know what the law is around uh, speech and around reporting. And in this case, and in 2016, you were dealing with true material. There is no basis to restrict the publication of true material, no matter who the source is uh, and how you get it. Um, And journalists have always understood that. Uh, And this has never been an issue or a controversial issue uh, until very recently. And by the way, just one quick thing I'll add. That's the exact same strategy of the malinformation misleading. In other words, they were saying they were saying even if the material you think is true, it could lead people to have conclusions that we don't want them to have. And therefore, you should change your journalism because of that. So this is uh, we're so far down the slippery slope. You know, you've crashed at that point. I mean, it's, um, it's a disturbing trend in journalism, in social media, and in the relationship from the intelligence community to these organizations. Now, the less response to those Twitter files and the journalist's testimony was to attack the journalists, attack free speech, and attack a free press, and, uh, and to justify and try to defend uh, the censorship of Americans by the Biden administration in collusion with big tech, because that's what the Twitter files showed. And they also showed how uh, Twitter in collusion with the government, the deep state, in 2020 uh, targeted Donald Trump with censorship while protecting Joe Biden from having information about his son's laptop come out. Uh, So that was election interference. It's pretty clear. And plus there was a censorship uh, directed not only by the government, by, but by allied outside groups uh, targeting anyone who dared veer from the narrative on uh, coronavirus or COVID or any other issue they didn't like. Um, and you had the FBI sending thousands of requests for potential censorship to Twitter. Uh, and let's put it this way. The government of Biden was sending so many various requests Twitter had trouble figuring out who was sending what request for censorship, which agency was doing what. I mean, they were overwhelmed with requests for censorship uh, from the government. And uh, I'm glad that uh, Jim Jordan has gotten uh, begun to get to the bottom of this by exposing this. Hopefully the next steps are ensuring that the government officials behind this censorship face accountability and punishment. And of course, that's the test because, you know, we've know about the Twitter files, right? But what are we going to do about them? That's, that's I think, the question most Americans have. Uh, we have to stop the censorship because it's, it's may have, it's obviously been pared back 
by Elon Musk at Twitter, uh, but it continues at Facebook, full throttle, it looks like, uh, the same at, at Google, which run, runs YouTube. And uh, it's got to stop. Certainly the government intervention to try to get your material censored or material that you want to see restricted from your ability to see it or, or suppressed is something that's got to stop immediately. And I, I just hope Congress gets to uh, uh, pursues that uh, issue quite aggressively. Uh, and of course, the Biden administration is continuing to push for censorship and suppression, not just directly by advocating for it, but by punishing and retaliating against Elon Musk for promoting freer speech on Twitter. The Biden administration, FTC, within minutes, I say that, you know, for some exaggeration, with some exaggeration, uh, started demanding documents from Elon Musk uh, after he bought Twitter, uh, supposedly about a consent decree related to the protection of privacy of Twitter users. So the FTC, under Biden's uh, appointees, immediately started targeting Elon Musk. They demanded documents about uh, virtually every document about Elon Musk at Twitter. Uh, they also demanded information about the journalists he, his organization, his company was working with to expose Biden corruption and government censorship. I mean, wh- what is the purpose of doing that other than to exact a penalty and scare Musk off potentially uh, from continuing to expose this censorship? And of course, it sends a signal to other um, big tech platforms such as Meta's uh, Facebook and YouTube, owned by Google, uh, don't, don't slow down on censorship because we'll come after you as well. Not only do we have the Democrats attacking those uh, who are exposing Biden corruption in the Congress, but the Biden FTC is attacking Elon Musk and abusing authority to target him in obvious retaliation for his blowing the whistle on election interference that's been uncovered, the collusive censorship, not only through Twitter, but these other platforms. Now, Judicial Watch is investigating all of this. We're very much concerned about the First Amendment and censorship here. Uh, We have much in the way of litigation trying to expose the ongoing censorship. We've got a challenge in California against the censorship there where the California Secretary of State, uh, just before the 2020 election, caused YouTube to take down one of our videos. It was a Judicial Watch video just like this one where I was talking about mail-in ballots and dirty election rolls. So we've got a civil rights lawsuit over that. So this is the civil rights battle of our time in many ways. Your right to have free speech online. And uh, this is pretty serious where the government is retaliating through congressional offices and uh, through the Biden administration those citizens and good corporate citizens like Twitter and Elon Musk who are exposing and combating this. Some of you may think, well, what does Judicial Watch do? I see this fitting guy on these videos, but what do we do? And Judicial Watch does a lot in terms of litigation. We're the number one litigator for open records in the country, if not the world. So we have uh, filed hundreds of Freedom of Information Act lawsuits Uh, many of which have uh, focused on some of the worst government corruption in American history, uh, which is specifically the targeting of President Trump, uh, the spying and targeting of not only Trump, but Trump world generally, 
and abusing power to go after uh, him. Uh, one of these um, lawsuits I talked about last week was about uh, the government collusion with big media to target Trump world. Paul Manafort in 2017, he was, um, I guess at that time, the former campaign chair of uh, President Trump and the Justice Department was uh, trying to create charges against him. And they met with, the, with reporters for the Associated Press who shared with the Justice Department and FBI at this meeting a, um, the passcode for Manafort's storage locker. I mean, so you had the AP acting as like an informant um, against a Trump associate. And when you look at the records that we were able to obtain about this meeting, uh, you'll see that, um, that the AP was very interested in getting Manafort prosecuted. And the Justice Department was feeding him little tidbits of information suggesting that was in the offing. So it was wildly abusive. And it shows the corruption not only of the deep state, uh, but their media collaborators. Uh, so that was an important lawsuit as it was. The meeting took place in 2017. They ignored our request for information once we found out about it. We sued in 2018. And to this day, we're still fighting for documents. Why? Because the government took the position that a then U.S. attorney or then assistant U.S. attorney, even though he intended the meeting at issue, they didn't need to search his emails. And we had to fight for, I guess, almost a year with them about that. And they refused to look at his emails until a federal court overseeing the case ruled that not only did they have to search his emails, but they should have searched his emails when we first asked. And then since then, we've learned that they've got this retention policy at the Justice Department, and the Justice Department has various components in it. Think of like the criminal division or civil rights division, but there's another division called the Executive Office of U.S. Attorney's Offices, which is the administrative division, or the, you know, that's kind of the, the general office for all the U.S. Attorney's Offices. And um, it turns out that because they've got this new retention policy for three years, meaning they can delete certain emails after three years, emails responsive potentially to our request may have been deleted. But if they had searched it, this, uh, the records at the time we had asked, that wouldn't have been an issue. So that's what, we, that's what our court hearing was about this week. And the court wants um, um, basically to move the case along and figure out what to do and hear arguments from us about what to do and arguments from the Justice Department about what to do. But I think even broader than the issue of them playing games by not looking for these records and then waiting too long, and then, oops, they may have been deleted, uh, there's this bigger issue of the Justice Department through its executive office of U.S. attorneys confirmed to a federal court they're deleting countless emails about issues that would be important to the American people under FOIA and other records laws. What, what, what's going on? Now, they say there are certain only categories of emails that if they were, if it was from a top official, they're not necessarily deleted. If they're from the case file, they're not necessarily deleted. If there's a litigation hold, they're not necessarily deleted. But of course, we asked for them under FOIA and they were deleted. 
And of course, even under those kind of categories, there are lots of other emails that could be deleted that many people would be interested in. Now, I want you to imagine that if a private entity, uh, the Justice Department came at them and said, we want to search for, you, we want these records, and the private entity says, well, we're not going to search until we get a court order, and they get the court order, and turns out the entity had destroyed records in the meantime, what would the Justice Department do? They'd haul them in front of the court and try to get them in jail, right? But the Justice Department, this is, this is seemingly, uh, again, like Hillary's emails all over again, all these other email scandals where they have records that they know are responsive, they hide them from Judicial Watch, they hide them from the American people, they play games with the courts, and it turns out they get deleted, they get bleached, they get so-called uh, um, you know, cleaned from the servers, and the American people are treated like chumps. And um, we hope that the court here acts um, aggressively in, in light of this, in my view, this contempt of court and this contempt of the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, but the headline here is there is this big anti-Trump collusion scandal that they hid records uh, from us for years over. And it turns out they ended up deleting some of them potentially that were responsive despite court rulings suggesting they should have been searched. Unbelievable. And who knows what other emails are being deleted about other cases and issues. I hope Congress, I might, I might have to tell Congress about this, right? And let them know that they better let, let the Justice Department know, don't st stop deleting any emails. Because this is just one agency. I don't know what the criminal division does. I don't know what the FBI's retention policy is. But this is a huge loophole the government has created for itself. Uh, to delete information the American people arguably have a right to. And of course, it's been uncovered, not by Congress, not by the media, but by Judicial Watch's heavy lifting in federal court. So we had that cover-up related to the targeting of uh, Trump associates, and then there's this other cover-up we think is taking place uh, related to the abuses around January 6th, where uh, they've seemingly were targeting entire elements of the population uh, using the January 6th disturbance as a, a pretext. We have these admissions by the FBI and the Justice Department and there were press reports uh, showing that uh, they were getting banking data, specifically credit card and debit card transactions, of everyone in the District of Columbia or the area, the DMV, the District Maryland, Virginia area, around January 5th and January 6th. Now, dear viewer, if you were a resident in January 5th and 6th, do you think the FBI had a right to look at your banking records just because you happened to be here that day? No, they didn't. And so we've asked for records about this, and the FBI and the Justice Department, they refused to give us any communications with the banks about this issue. And not only have they refused, but they've refused to confirm or deny that any such communications exist. They use what is called the GLOMAR um, uh, exemption. Now, the Glomar concept exemption was, uh, it goes back to a case, I think we were trying to figure out um, how to get access to a submarine that had sunk many years ago, and I think it was like the USS Glomar was one of the ships involved, and I guess a newspaper or a reporter figured out something was happening and tried to get some confirmation, 
and they gave the reporter a do not, we can't confirm or deny. And one can understand in national security situations why to confirm or deny something gives information away, right? Well, this obviously isn't a national security issue. This is an issue of FBI abuse of American citizens and privacy using January 6th the, as, as a fake reason uh, to uh, go after and review the banking records of, of millions, potentially, of innocent American citizens. I mean, this is a wild abuse of power by the government, in my view. And unfortunately, the lower court let the FBI get away with this Glomar, I can't confirm or deny response. And so we filed an appeal in November of last year challenging the lower court's decision allowing the FBI to withhold records of communications between the FBI and several financial institutions about the reported transfer of these private financial transaction information uh, records. Judicial Watch asked for all records and communications between the FBI and any financial institution, included but not limited, Bank of America, Citibank, Chase, Manhattan Bank, Discover, and or American Express, in which the FBI sought transaction data for those financial institutions, debits, and credit card account holders who made purchases in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia on January 5th and or January 6th, 2021. We argued that this appeal arises from what appears to be an unprecedented abuse of the financial privacy of thousands of Americans. Substantial and compelling evidence demonstrates that the FBI sought and received records from financial institutions of anyone who used a credit card or engaged in other transactions in the D.C. area on January 5th or 6th, 2021. This would include many thousands of persons living in the D.C. area, including possibly members of this court. So no one was immune, right? If you had those transactions, and they were pursued as has been suggested. Judicial Watch pointed out that the lower court was mistaken when it upheld the FBI's Glomar response, neither confirming nor denying the existence of records, because the FBI previously acknowledged the existence of the records in multiple ways. For instance, court records filed in support of a criminal case include the FBI's statement of facts that provide the defendant's address, which was obtained through his Bank of America account and recent Expedia transactions. In another case, the FBI confirmed that it obtained records from the PNC Bank and discussed detail, in detail the multiple ways that it used the financial data. In additional, additionally, financial records obtained from J.P. Morgan Chase Bank corroborate uh, the defendant used a credit card issued in his name to purchase gas and food en route to D.C. And then we cited two other cases in which the FBI describes in publicly available court records its use of financial records in the January 6th investigation. Why is that important? Because the FBI has basically let the cat out of the bag. This isn't a state secret. It shouldn't be a state secret. The only reason it is a state secret is because they were seeking financial data on folks that they knew were never involved or were likely never involved or they had no reason to believe were involved in January 6th. So if you were visiting D.C. for any reason and you were a client of any of these banks, you had a credit card or you had an account, you're using your debit card, they could have been looking at your financial records. And anyone who is a resident, if they were doing anything using their financial, uh, using their credit cards or debit cards, the FBI could have been looking at the financial records potentially of millions of Americans here in D.C. area. And why, why is it a state secret? So we had the appellate court decision 
excuse me, the appellate court argument this morning, and you can listen to it. Unfortunately, the judges there were quite hostile towards us. So I don't know how they're going to rule. Uh, but uh, when it comes to January 6th, there seems to be new rules for the government. They get to do what they want. And in this case, you had the Justice Department, I encourage you to listen to the hearing, suggest that, well, maybe this FOIA might be okay, but what if another FOIA comes up and we have to give up too much information? I mean, so this FOIA is okay, but we can't have the records because another FOIA in the future might not be okay? We want the rule of law to apply here. And don't use January 6th as an excuse to hide this abuse of power by the FBI and Justice Department that had them vacuuming up the financial data and violating the privacy and the constitutional rights of countless millions of Americans in their crazed response to the January 6th disturbance. Again, this is what I love about Judicial Watch, because the media cares not one whit about the abuses of power by the Biden administration and the deep state targeting those who are on the wrong side of the political argument on the 2020 election disputes. This is what it's about. It's a political argument. And what they're trying to do is criminalize those who have the wrong political views, mainly Trump and his supporters, and tens of millions, if not half the country, who have questions about the 2020 election. And to the degree they can tie anyone to January 6th, they'll break all the rules to get them. They'll hide videos in the Capitol. They'll snoop at bank records without a subpoena. And who knows what else they've been doing. And Judicial Watch will be front and center demanding accountability and exposing this misconduct. And uh, we're going to fight. We're going to lose in court sometimes, and we're going to win in court sometimes, but we're not just going to give up. And we're going to pursue it as best as we're able with our capacities. And of course, if you like what you're hearing here, I encourage you to increase our capacities, increase our ability to do the heavy lifting by supporting our work by going to our website at judicialwatch.org. Well, I have another great uh, piece of news here. We had a big victory in federal court this week, or um, I guess it was last week. Uh, a federal court allowed uh, a Judicial Watch lawsuit filed on behalf of a magistrate who was fired for comments on a released rapist murder of his victim to go forward. So this was a civil rights lawsuit. We filed on behalf of the magistrate who was fired from her job for comments she made as a citizen about uh, really the court's failures and the court system's failures in allowing a rapist to get out of jail and then go murder the victim. And so uh, we filed this lawsuit and uh, the, uh, the court and the defendants went in and objected and tried to get it dismissed out of hand and the federal court said no. I mean, they, they dismissed parts of the lawsuit, but the, uh, uh, the heart of the lawsuit continues, the First Amendment claim continues, and it's an important issue that I want to explain to you further. Uh, the judge ruled that the lawsuit can go forward on behalf of former Virginia Magistrate Elizabeth Fuller against officials in the Office of the Executive Secretary of Magistrate Services for firing Fuller in violation of her First Amendment rights. On October 29th, excuse me, on October 19th, 2021, Fuller was fired from her position as a magistrate after commenting to the Alexandria Times as part of a discussion about the publicly available outcome of her own 2020 complaint that she had filed 
against a bondsman named uh, Mayan Nguyen. Um, the judge's order states that the court finds that Fuller had sufficiently alleged a First Amendment violation to survive a motion to dismiss. Uh, her comments to the Alexandria Times, the court wrote, facially concern a matter of public interest. Her comments concern the murder of Ms. Dominguez, who had received, uh, which had received media attention and, quote, fueled public debate about lenient law enforcement and bail practices in the Commonwealth of Virginia and nationwide. Her murder was even discussed by then-Virginia delegate, now Virginia Attorney General Jason Myers, during a floor debate on bail reform in the Virginia General Assembly. In her comments to the Alexandria Times, Fuller appeared to express her discontentment with the actions of um, the various folks involved and her belief that Ms. Dominguez's death was, quote, entirely preventable if anybody in the process had been doing their job effectively. And because she spoke to the Alexandria Times about that, they fired her. And so we're so pleased that we will have this ability to defend and get into discovery and vindicate uh, her First Amendment claims in court. On or about January 13th, 2020, Ibram Elaki Buachi was arrested and indicted by a grand jury for burglary with the intent to commit murder, abduction, sodomy, strangulation, and rape of Carla Elizabeth Dominguez Gonzalez. Notwithstanding the seriousness of these charges, the Alexandria Circuit Court, Alexandria, those of you who aren't in the D.C. area, uh, is um, it's right across the river. It's right across the river from D.C., down, just down a little bit south of D.C., across the Potomac River in Virginia. Uh, the Alexandria Circuit Court released uh, Buiachi on a $25,000 bond in April of 2020, less than four months after his release on bail, uh, Buiachi, on July 29, 2020, reportedly drove to Dominguez's residence in Alexandria, Virginia, and shot and killed her outside her apartment complex. And as we pointed out in the initial complaint, in the immediate days following the news report about the murder, Fuller learned from a police officer in the citizen lobby of the magistrate's office that the vehicle and gun reportedly used by Buiachi to murder Dominguez belonged to the surety bail bondsman, Man Nguyen who posted the $25,000 bond for Buiachi's release in April 2020. On information and belief, the bondsman and the officer struck a casual conversation while they were waiting in the citizen's lobby when Nguyen said it was his gun and car that Buiachi used to murder Dominguez, and he had let Buiachi stay at his house while he was away on vacation. The officer subsequently relayed the information to plaintiff as part of a casual conversation among friendly colleagues outside any hearing or proceeding. This is important because she didn't learn, or learn this information our client did in her capacity as a judge. She learned it in scuttlebutt in the hallways. On August 6, in 2020, Fuller in her personal capacity filed a complaint with the Commonwealth of Virginia Department of Criminal Justice Services alleging that Negan had violated rules and regulations of his licensure as a surety bail bondsman. On September 1, 2020, his license was suspended and revoked as a result, and Fuller understood that that concluded the matter. So she did do some great work there in acting as a citizen to get this bondsman out of the business of being a bondsman after he violated virtually every rule they have, practically speaking, to allow this accused rapist uh, to um, stay at his home and then have access to, uh, it looks like, his gun and his car to kill that poor woman. 
More than a year later, the Alexandria Times disclosed the contents of Fuller's complaint and other information obtained through a third party's Freedom of Information Act request, there's the FOIA, regarding um, the bail bondsman's involvement and subsequently approached Fuller for comment about the complaint in 2021. So this is over a year later. The newspaper goes to our client and says, what about this complaint you filed? And this is what she said. She said that the bail bondsman came to work in the days following the murder nearly boasting and joking about the fact that the gun and car belonged to him and that the murderer had stayed at his home. The bondsman was telling this officer, this is a quote, about what happened and almost bragging about it. The officer said to me, you'll never believe what he just said to me. So I said, I've got to do something about it. And what happened? Five days after that was published, she was fired. She was fired. Well, she was placed on a, excuse me, she was placed on administrative leave five days after it happened and fired a few weeks later. Supposedly for violating a canon which states a magistrate shall abstain from public comment about a pending, impending, or concluded proceeding in any court or magistrate's office. Well, that, there was no pending, impending, or concluded proceeding. And besides, she had an independent right to talk as a, as a citizen. Fuller filed a grievance and asked for reinstatement, which was denied. So we sued. She was engaged in constitutionally protected speech, which undeniably addressed matters of public concern. And the court found, at least at this stage in the case, that we made a plausible showing in that regard. Simply put, as I said in this lawsuit, excuse me, in this press release, Ms. Fuller embarrassed Virginia's court officials over their deadly soft-on-crime bail policies. And as this federal court just noted, our client commented on a serious public safety matter of widespread public interest. So this lawsuit will now proceed to discovery and we hope ultimately to trial. Now, Liz Fuller had a comment as well, and I want, you to, I want to share our client's comment with you. I'm so proud that Judicial Watch was so gracious to represent me before the federal court to secure this important victory for my First Amendment rights. This ultimately is not simply about whether or not I have a job, but about an innocent rape victim who unjustly and needlessly lost her life. It gives me hope that her story continues to be heard through this case independent of the outcome. So um, we are so happy for not only Liz Fuller, but you can see why this is an important issue otherwise. I mean, first of all, you had these soft on crime policies that led to this poor woman getting murdered. And the one person in the judicial system who did something about it, independent of the judicial system, it looks like, gets fired. I mean, talk about backwards, right? And so we're so pleased that the federal court's allowing this case to proceed. It's an important case. And, um, <laughs> I mean, she didn't deserve to be fired. I mean, she should get a medal. I don't know if they give medals for things like that, but you know what I mean. So we'll keep you updated as the case proceeds and as important things happen. So there's this big case in Texas over the decision by the FDA some time ago now to authorize the use of Mifeprex, which is a uh, otherwise known as the chemical abortion pill. And it was controversial when it was done. It was obviously political when it was done. Judicial Watch has been <laughs> investigating it for decades, really. It happened first during the Clinton administration. It was then known as RU-486, and when you look at the background of how the Clinton administration 
uh, pressured and intervened in inappropriate ways uh, to get this drug in a position to be approved uh, in a rushed uh, circumstance by the FDA, you'll be outraged. And of course, as soon as Obama came in, they changed the rules to make the abortion drug more easily obtainable and therefore more risky, we would allege, for the women using it. And then now, after uh, the Biden administration's come in, uh, they just want to basically hand it out like uh, candy at pharmacies and ignore the rule of law and the public health on this drug. Now, uh, when you compare and contrast it to how other drugs will ha- were handled, you can see that it's obviously a political issue. And I, um, uh, there's no reason that this drug would have been approved but for politics. Let's put it this way. And so uh, another group has sued in Texas uh, to challenge the FDA's approval of this drug. And Judicial Watch agrees uh, with this group in our filing. We call the FDA approval process as arbitrary, capricious, and an abuse of discretion and not in accordance with the law. Judicial Watch filed the brief in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas in a case known as Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, H-A-A-H-M, versus U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Now, the left is crazed about the possibility that they're wrong on this drug because they're relying on the widespread availability of this drug in contravention of all public health norms and federal law that restrict its mailing uh, to as an end run around states that are restricting abortion and trying to protect unborn human life and, frankly, the health of pregnant mothers. The evidence uncovered by the FDA's, uh, of the FDA's true motivation for the decision to approve Mifeprix is eye-opening and shows the Clinton administration, this is what we wrote in our brief, and the FBA applying political pressure on not only international corporations but on international governments, all for a drug to kill prenatal human beings. The evidence also shows the intricate political and corporate machinations spent in the service of promoting a drug that has nothing to do with women's health. The FDA pressured both Roussel, a French company, and Hoysch AG, a German pharmaceutical company, and a majority shareholder of Roussel to bring the abortion pill to the U.S. For obvious reasons, the German company and the French company were hesitant about making this abortion drug widely available. Why? Because of the Holocaust. That was the political concern they had. It wasn't a concern for the Clinton gang. In a November 15, 1993 letter from Donna Shalala, HHS Secretary to the White House, Clinton White House at the time, she states that the FDA commissioner at the time had taken steps to persuade Roussel, Euclid, and Hoysch to change their position. I'm probably pronouncing the company's name wrong, but... You can look it up. The Clinton administration and the FDA were willing to place political pressure on these two foreign governments, France and Germany too, to accomplish the task of approving an abortion pill. This was not a life-saving medication or a drug that cured cancer. This was a drug which was being sought for one purpose and one purpose alone, the intentional death of prenatal humans. And for what reason? The ability to satisfy a financially and politically powerful group of abortion advocates. Judicial Watch explained that the FDA improperly weakened safety restrictions regarding Mifeprix over the years. And I told you about that, how they made it, uh, you know, first of all, they increased the dosage, which made it more risky. And plus now they want it to be able to be sent out without even um, being having to consult a doctor in person.
So uh, again, this isn't our first rodeo when it comes to this drug. We had uncovered uh, through this litigation that we began in um, 2000 that um, uh, it was risky, it was potentially dangerous, and they didn't want that information coming out. We had to sue to get it out. Does it remind you of some other things the FDA has been doing? Judicial Watch successfully obtained over 9,000 pages of records and then fought the agency over the withheld records. In May of 2006, we released a special report, you can see it as a, in the link to the press release below, containing documents that shed light on the Clinton administration's push to get the abortion drug to market in the United States. And if I recall correctly about that whole thing with the Clinton gang, I, I've got two words for you to make you question whether the Clinton administration's approval of this radical and, in my view, dangerous abortion drug was appropriate. Hillary Clinton, she was involved. We were also just sued last year, uh, uh, HHS, for records on uh, the safety of this drug. The drug stability test results, the new drug applications, and related materials of the abortion drug Mifeprex, as well as requests for reviews and assessments of the manufacturing facilities Danco and GenBio, where the drugs are produced. You know, like, so generally, this drug causes abortion, and it's a mix of two drugs, I think, where you need two drugs in order for it to work. And uh, the earlier in pregnancy, the less risky it is, uh, but you still should be under doctor supervision. And, the, and the, the danger and the concern is by allowing it to be used in a widespread fashion without doctor's personal supervision or virtually any supervision at all, uh, women will be taking it much later in pregnancy than it's intended for, which is just a nightmare, which is potentially a nightmare. So, uh, but the abortion movement has a lot riding on this uh, abortion drug. And so uh, this Texas court, I hope, upholds the rule of law and Judicial Watch is proud to continue its decades-long its decades -long work to expose the dangers and the truth behind the politicized approval of this chemical abortion pill. And uh, the courts can't act soon enough to restrain the FDA's lawlessness on its handling of this drug that could harm pregnant women and their unborn children, obviously. Well, it had been a busy week um, or weekend previously uh, for Judicial Watch at CPAC. We had a, uh, a big presence there. We were sponsors of CPAC and all the politicians came to talk and all the movement activists came to talk and uh, Judicial Watch uh, was there. We had many great videos and interviews uh, with uh, some of the speakers, so I encourage you to go to our uh, video sites, our channels on YouTube and Rumble uh, to watch all of the great interviews by my colleague Amelia Cohen. And the other big issue is I gave a speech, and it was a great speech. Now, I know I'm being subjective, but I think it was a great speech. And uh, it nicely highlighted the battles we face as a country and the way out. And I want to play it, the speech for you in its entirety. It's not that long. I think it's going to motivate you, uh, kind of infuriate you, uh, but I think it will give you some hope at the end. So here's my, uh, what I think to be, historic speech at CPAC last week. Good afternoon. Judicial Watch is your watchdog in Washington. I'd hate to think where our nation would be without Judicial Watch. Don't you agree? I mean, we did change history by uncovering Hillary's emails. Sorry, Hillary. 
And I dare say we saved the republic by protecting President Trump from being thrown out. He could have been driven out of office by the deep state Obama-Clinton-Biden gang if Judicial Watch hadn't taken the lead early on in exposing the Russia hoax and their desperate effort to end democracy by driving Trump from office through the shifty impeachments or the political prosecutions. Judicial Watch protected Trump and our republic from the worst corruption scandal in American history by exposing the FISA abuse, the Comey corruption, and the seditious conspiracy against Trump by the FBI and DOJ. Obama knew, Clinton knew, Comey knew, Biden knew, Brennan knew, McCabe knew, Strzok knew, Clapper knew, Schiff knew, the FBI knew, the DOJ knew, the CIA knew, the State Department knew, they all knew Trump was innocent, but they smeared and spied on him anyway. Worse than Watergate. Trump is a crime victim. Let's remember that. By the way, thank you, Speaker McCarthy, for kicking Schiff and Swalwell of the Fang Fang scandal off the Intelligence Committee. Frankly, Schiff should be on no House committees. The country would be better off if Judicial Watch, frankly, were special counsel. You know, I, I think I'm going to text Durham here. <laughs> Bruh, CPAC is emoji fire, emoji fire, emoji fire. Uh, where are you? By the way, Hillary did it. TF, exclamation point. Where's, where's Durham? The targeting of Trump is part and parcel of a broad left-wing attack on our republic. The good news is that the left's targets show us what we need to do. They're attacking parents who are trying to hold school boards accountable for targeting their children with Marxist anti-American critical race theory. That means we should embrace the rights of parents to direct the education of their children. The left is attacking government transparency by accusing Judicial Watch, parents, and other citizens for daring to ask questions about what our government is up to. That means we should embrace and expand government transparency. The left is attacking the courts. They're angry that the Supreme Court would dare restore the state's ability to protect innocent unborn babies. They're threatening to pack the Supreme Court while simultaneously illegally threatening and intimidating the court. This means we must embrace the rule of law, including the principle that the court should decide cases free of politics. And of course, the left is protecting, or excuse me, the left is attacking the right to life, promoting abortion up until birth and even beyond. This means we should embrace life, protect the unborn, and confront the culture of death. And by the way, Thank you, President Trump, for appointing sensible Supreme Court justices who protected constitutional government by overturning the evil Roe decision. There are countless babies alive today thanks to this historic victory. If that doesn't deserve an ovation of praise, I don't know what would.
And of course, the left is attacking our sovereignty and the notion of citizenship with Biden allowing a not so slow motion invasion of America. We should embrace the rule of law and immigration by securing our borders and requiring every illegal alien to return home. You know, and, and this really gets me upset. The left is attacking our children, pushing sex talk, transgender extremism, and noxious politics in our schools. We should reject this demonic assault on the innocence of our children and stand fast against leftist efforts to mutilate their bodies and minds. The left is assaulting the First Amendment and free speech, especially online speech. We should embrace the First Amendment and reject the politicized censorship of our God-given free speech rights, especially in the modern public square of the Internet. Be warned, YouTube tried to censor my CPAC speech from last year, and I've been banned by TikTok not because of my dance moves, but for telling the truth, I suspect, about topics such as Biden and China. The left is assaulting the constitutional principle of equal treatment under the law, no matter your race. They promote racial discrimination, racial division, and blatant segregation. We should embrace civil rights under the law and reject the repackaged malicious Marxism of critical race theory. Okay, censors, get your pens out. The left is attacking elections making it easier to steal elections with unsupervised voting, mass mail-in voting, no voter ID, and the counting of ballots for forever and a day. And if you raise a question about their schemes, as we're seeing what they're doing with the January 6th prosecutions, they will literally try to put you in jail. We should embrace secure elections and vindicate our right to speak and advocate for clean elections that aren't rigged by Hillary, Obama, Zuckerberg, Twitter, or the FBI. And let me be blunt, you can also rig an election by censoring a candidate, as they did with Trump, while suppressing discussion about another candidate, as they did with suppressing the Biden laptop scandal. Thank you, Elon Musk for exposing the truth on the left's election interference. You know, I know it seems like things are dire, and I won't beat around the bush they are. Our president is compromised by his family's foreign racketeering. This corruption has weakened America and made us less safe. Biden's corruption and attendant weakness invited Putin's aggression in Ukraine and the balloon spycraft attacked by the Chinese communists. In addition to the corruption crisis, we're in a revolutionary period where the communists think they can undo our, undo our Republican form of government. All I can say is thank heaven for Judicial Watch. We're America's largest and most effective government watchdog group. The left starts sweating when we start foying. We smash through stone walls to get to the truth. For example, virtually everything we know about Fauci's gain-of-function research in Wuhan and the vaccines is because of Judicial Watch's heavy lifting under the Freedom of Information Act. I suspect that one reason Fauci retired because we knew we, because he knew we were on to him. And you can trust that Judicial Watch is committed to ensuring you have all the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly about the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines. 
I mean, the fact that we had to sue about this basic information related to the vaccines should scare the heck out of you. Reading the documents at judicialwatch.org, you know, go ahead and read them. You'll see what I mean. Judicial Watch is also standing for strong, uh, standing strong for free, fair, and honest elections. Just last week, we announced how Los Angeles County removed 1.2 million, 1.2 million dirty names from the voter rolls thanks to our federal lawsuit settlement. And that follows New York City removing 440,000 names and North Carolina cleaning up 430,000 names. So let's do the math. You heard that right. Judicial Watch is responsible for cleaning up 2 million names from the voting rolls in the last year. And more is coming. And we're now in Illinois challenging that state's law that allows the counting of mailed ballots that arrive for up to two weeks after Election Day, even without a postmark. You may recall we had an issue with that in 2020. And we're pushing to end ballot harvesting, voting for months. We should have an Election Day, not an election season. Mass voting by mail while pushing for voter ID and, yes, citizenship verification in order to vote. If the left got their way, tens of millions of foreigners would be able to vote in our elections, just like they're able to do in our local elections now, it looks like, here in our nation's capital. That right, that's right, they spend their time smearing conservatives as being in favor of foreign interference in our elections, while given now the Russian and Chinese ambassadors here in D.C., and illegal aliens, the right to vote in our nation's capital's elections. I don't know what Durham is doing, as I said. He hasn't got, I don't think, nope, he hasn't texted me back yet. But I do know what Judicial Watch is doing. We're battling government corruption. We expose Biden's corruption in Russia and China and are right now in federal court to expose the corruption about Biden's raid on Trump's home for document crimes that they know that Trump is innocent of, but for which Biden is almost certainly guilty. And of course, we have the censorship crisis. By the way, when I'm censored or Trump is censored, you are censored. Conservatives by the tens of millions are having their civil rights violated by big tech collusive censorship with the deep state and the Biden gang. We're exposing this censorship abuse, not just through FOIA. We just filed a civil rights lawsuit against the California Secretary of State for causing YouTube to take down a Judicial Watch video just before the 2020 election that warned about dirty election rolls and opposing mail-in balloting. Let me warn you politicians and government bureaucrats, if you censor citizens, you are violating the law and Judicial Watch will work to hold you personally accountable. Now, forget about COVID. The real pandemic we have, obviously, is the critical race theory. Your friendly neighborhood Judicial Watch, thankfully, is on point in terms of exposing and stopping this threat to truth, justice, and the American way. We sued and stopped CRT quota schemes in California. We exposed through FOIA the racial abuse of our kids and the brainwashing of our military's rising leadership at our military academies, such as West Point. And if you aren't a parent, who wants to know what your schools are up to, please contact Judicial Watch. We'll help you protect your kids. Because FOIA is your friend, and it is the enemy of the race hustlers taking over our schools. 
And when it comes to taking on government corruption, Judicial Watch is second to none. Let's hope now the House does the right thing, but Judicial Watch, while helping, will continue to do its own thing, investigating the current crisis. Let me suggest to Congress, since we know about the deep state crimes, censorship, abuse, and other corruption, two years of hearings ain't going to cut it. We want accountability. That means criminal referrals, funding cuts, protection from illegal abuse, and firings. You know, and how about, uh, how about securing our border? Uh, no new laws are necessary. I have one neat trick for immigration reform. Enforce the law. And by the way, an impeachment or two would be nice. If the Schiff-Pelosi gang can impeach Trump in order to cover up Biden corruption, why not actually impeach Biden for his actual corruption? The FBI and DOJ obviously are irredeemably corrupt. In the least, no more blank checks for the political enforcement arms of the left and the Democratic Party. Because the left using federal law enforcement to destroy their political opposition, it could be the end of our republic. You know, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do. But I'm up for it. Are you? I won't back down. Will you? Your Judicial Watch is ready to work with you to protect life, protect our children, protect our Constitution, protect the rule of law, protect our civil rights, protect parents, protect political prisoners and the targets of Biden DOJ abuse, protect our borders, protect free speech, protect America from the predator left that seeks to upend this glorious country. You can do it. We can do it. We must do it. God bless you and God bless America. Isn't that a great speech? No, I'm just kidding. But I thought it was, I thought it was important that the, uh, not only the folks there at CPAC, but everyone watching, you know, know about the crisis we face and what the left is up to and what we have to do to confront them. And what uh, Judicial Watch specifically is doing, it's not just talk, it's going to court and battling for our republic, for our liberty, for our children, for our lives, for our civil liberties in court time after time. And how do I know it was a good speech? Because you know what the left's reaction was? Was to attack my physical appearance. That's the number one reaction of the left. So rather than to talk about the substance, they engage in ad hominem attacks on how I look, I guess I intimidate them or trigger them just by being present at places like this. But it shows you how powerful a message that this is, that the left is left virtually speechless in the face of the truths that I was honored to present on behalf of Judicial Watch and yes, you, dear supporter. Well, thank you for joining us this week uh, on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. I hope to see you back here next time for our next program. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.